0: Oh! To the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in depth, one hour radio broadcast features a verse by verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 14, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson.
1: Let's turn now to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14 as we continue our journey through the Bible. And it came to pass as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. Now, this is the third time that Luke tells us that Jesus uh, went to eat at the house of a Pharisee. we do know that uh, this man had invited Jesus. Verse 12, Then said Jesus also unto him that had uh, invited him, when you make a dinner or supper. So Jesus had been invited by the Pharisee. The seventh chapter, uh, he was invited by a Pharisee by the name of Simon to come and eat. And always it seems like the purpose was sort of just critical, to some way find fault with Jesus. And in the seventh chapter, when Jesus was eating at the house of Simon, the Pharisee, uh, the woman came with the alabaster box of ointment. And uh, you remember she washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and then put the perfume on his feet. And uh, Simon the Pharisee said, oh, yes, this man, if he knew really all things, if he were the Messiah and all, he would know that this woman was a very wicked woman and he wouldn't allow her to touch him. And so he was critical of Jesus. And of course, Jesus answered the criticism of Simon the Pharisee in chapter 7. Chapter... 11, where Jesus was invited again by the Pharisees to eat. And of course, Jesus just loved to eat with people and he didn't care. Uh, Pharisees or not, if you had dinner, he was ready to come. And uh, so in the 11th chapter, as he was eating with the Pharisees, this one ended up in a real Donnybrook. I mean, it ended up with charges and accusations and uh, Jesus really uh, laid one on them And so it ended up in quite a controversy. So this is the third time now in Luke's gospel where Jesus is invited to a dinner or to a feast by the Pharisees. And this seems to be a setup, a deliberate setup. Behold, there was a certain man... Uh, before him, which had the dropsy. In other words, they set Jesus in such a place that this fellow was right in front of him with the dropsy. Now, the dropsy was a fatal type of disease. Uh, it was uh, sort of an endemma. Uh, it was where the capillaries sort of break and the the uh, fluid, the serum, builds up inside of the skin and causes uh, a, a great... Uh, swelling of the sin uh, of the skin and a sagging and uh, very obvious and uh, very fatal. and so they set this fellow there where Jesus would see him because it was the Sabbath day. and they were wanting to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath day. The fellow was obviously in great need. Will Jesus heal him on the Sabbath day? So Jesus answering. Now, it doesn't say that anybody asked any question, but he was answering the question that was in their mind. In their mind, they were wondering, will he heal this fellow? And, of course, they were watching him, uh, ready to accuse him. So Jesus answering spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees, And he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, according to their interpretation of the law, it was not lawful. They had developed a tradition in the interpreting of the law that you could do nothing towards the healing of a person on the Sabbath day. You could take whatever means were necessary To prevent death That is, if a person were bleeding to death You could uh, apply a tourniquet But you couldn't apply any salve or any ointment or anything Until the Sabbath day was over Nothing towards the healing So Jesus asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Well, it would be extremely difficult to see a man dying there and they say, well, no, it isn't lawful, you know. And so they didn't answer him. They held their peace. And so he took the man and he healed him and he let him go. And then again he answered them. They, they were ready, you know, their accusations in their mind. He's violated the Sabbath. And he said, which of you that has a donkey or an ox that has fallen in a pit or in a well. Now, some of the translations or some of the manuscripts, the older manuscripts, some of them say, which of you having a son? In uh, Matthew's gospel, in a similar situation, Jesus said, which of you having a sheep or an ox? But which of you who has a son or a ox falls in a pit or in a well on the Sabbath day, he said, would you pull him out on the Sabbath day? If your son had fallen down a well, it was the Sabbath day, would you say, hang on, son, keep swimming. As soon as the sun goes down, we'll let a rope down and get you out of there. We'll pull you up, you know. And, And so it became quite obvious how ludicrous that was their position. Here's a person who is in need. If, if you would do something for an animal, shouldn't you do something for a human being? And so here's a man dying, obviously, in great need. Should he not be healed on the Sabbath day? And Jesus put their whole tradition in the light of its folly. Uh, how ridiculous was their interpretation of the Sabbath day law. Of course, uh, how ridiculous is a lot of their uh, interpretation of the law today? Even a lot of their laws of, uh, of, uh, the kosher laws concerning what you can eat. So that they are very, very strict, and even the non-religious Jews are very strict in keeping kosher. They will not eat, Meat with dairy products at a meal, and and they are very strict about this. We were in a cafe, and this old man pulled out a meat sandwich, but it was a dairy cafe. And you should have—I thought the place was just going to explode. I mean, was—they started screaming and yelling. And we didn't realize what was going on at first. And then we realized this fellow pulled out a meat sandwich, and oh, it just—the place exploded. They actually, many times, the Orthodox will even use different plates and different pots and all uh, for uh, the, the dinners with meat and, and those that are dairy dinners. Uh, they are, are, are so exacting. And even they won't eat turkey uh, with dairy products, any kind of meat with dairy products. Why? Why? Because the law said you're not to boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now, I don't know that turkeys even have milk. <laughs> but because of that law, they, they won't mix dairy products with meat products. Because you see, the milk that you drink, though it may have come from a cow, <laughs> uh they don't want to even mix, in, you know, it boil in your stomach or whatever, with with uh, the uh, lamb or, or with the turkey or whatever meat you might be eating. So it, you can see that they've carried it far more than than what the actual law said, and uh, they've made a tradition out of it, and and it actually becomes ridiculous uh, because turkeys don't give milk. So uh, it it just... And and so with this, the the law that you're not to heal on the Sabbath day, uh, you're not to do any kind of work. Well, if there's an emergency, if your son or if your sheep or if your ox should fall in a pit in the well or in a ditch, won't you pull him out on the Sabbath day? So again... They could not answer him regarding these things. So then he put forth the parable unto them, and this parable is prompted because he watched how that those who were invited to this feast were positioning themselves to sit at the places of honor, sit at the higher table or the more honorable table, sitting in the upper rooms at the feast. And and he watched as they were vying for these places of honor. And so he put forth this parable because they were picking out the chief rooms. And he said unto them, When you are bidden... Any of you to a wedding, don't sit in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than you is invited by the host, and he that invited you and him will come and say to you, Give this man your place, and you will begin with shame to take the lowest room. How embarrassing. You sit at a table of honor. You sort of position yourself there. And then here comes in a guest of honor, the governor. And they come up to you and they say, uh, sorry, you're not supposed to be at this table. You know, you go down. "Uh, Don't you know that it would be very embarrassing to walk across the crowd to the lower table? So Jesus is saying, don't, don't pick the highest place. They were doing that. This is, he was observing them as they were doing that. But he said, when you are bidden, uh, sit down in the lowest room so that when he who bids you comes, he may say unto you, oh, friend, come on up higher. And then you shall have the worship in the presence of them that sit at meet with thee. Uh, they see you being exalted. They see you being brought to a higher place. And then he gives the principle. Now, always you want to look in the Scripture for the basic principle that is being taught. And and in this little vignette, the basic principle that's being taught is this. For whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, this is something that is taught throughout the Scriptures. God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And uh, Paul tells us, let nothing be done through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, esteem others better than yourself. John wrote about a fellow by the name of Diotrephes, and he said he didn't receive us because he loves to have the preeminence. And it's always sad to see those people who love the preeminence uh, that are constantly exalting themselves. Now, as far as the world is concerned, this is opposite of, of the worldly philosophy that is to uh, be aggressive, be a go-getter, you know, the man who goes after it is the man who gets it. And, and they are applauding that person who is aggressive. But Jesus says that if you exalt yourself, you're going to be abased. And over and over throughout history, and even in the present hour, we can see where this truth has been manifested in so many lives, in the lives of politicians, in the lives of financiers, in the lives of ministers, in the lives of sports heroes? How many who have exalted themselves have ended up being abased? Now, you see, they were looking to accuse Jesus they had set him up for this fellow with the dropsy. And now Jesus takes them on. First of all, he takes on these guests, these other guests that were invited, for their attitude of looking for the highest place and, you know, sort of trying to get into the places of prominence and honor. But then he took on the Pharisee, the chief Pharisee that invited him he then turned his attention to him. And in verse 12, he said unto him who had bid him or invited him, when you make a dinner or a supper, don't call your friends nor your brothers, neither your family nor the rich neighbors, lest they also bid you to come again to their place and you are rewarded. Recompense is made to you. But when you make a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. Let me turn my page here. Uh, For they cannot recompense thee, for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. Now, the idea is... uh, Laying up treasures in heaven. Thinking concerning the eternal kingdom. Uh, Don't make great feasts and all, and then for for your own benefit, that you might gain from it, that you in turn might be a part of the social set, set and invitation then be given to you and recompense made. No reward in that. That may be good business. It may be uh, social uh, kind of advancement. But it isn't spiritual advancement. When you make a feast, go out and invite the poor, the halt, the maimed, the blind. And and then you will have a heavenly reward for that. So one of those who were standing there in the crowd, now always there were their invited guests and then... But whenever a famous rabbi was invited to eat, the doors were always open and the neighbors could come in too. They would stand around. They couldn't uh, recline at the tables and eat, but they could stand around and, and listen to the wisdom of the rabbi. And so someone who was there just listening in on what Jesus had said as he sort of rebuked the host because of the guest list, he said, one of those that's." Uh, Stood by or sat at meat with them, heard these things, and he said unto him, "Blessed is he that eats bread in the kingdom of God." He he got the message, and he realized that uh, the kingdom of God, uh, how blessed it'll be for those who will eat bread then. So he said unto him, he responded to this man. This man is is caught the vision, and so he responds unto him. With a parable. And he said, There was a certain man who made a great supper and he invited many. And he sent out his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. Dinner's on the table, come on. And they all, with one consent, began to make excuse. Benjamin Franklin said, a man who is good at making excuses is seldom good for anything else. And many times there's a reason for not doing things, but often there's only an excuse. It's not a reason, just an excuse. And surely these are excuses. Listen to them. They are lame excuses. One said... I've bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Now, who buys property without seeing it? Who would buy a lot without seeing it? I've bought a piece of ground. I've got to go see it. Have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to prove them. I pray, have me excused. Now, again, who buys oxen without, first of all, examining it? Would you buy a used car without, first of all, driving it around the block? You know, it's like saying, well, I bought, I bought this car, and I, I've got to go see if it runs. <laughs> it's a lame excuse. <laughs> the next one, common. I've married a wife. <laughs> Boy, that one goes way back, doesn't it? In the Garden of Eden, when God said, Adam, what have you done? That woman. (laughs) You gave to be my wife. (laughs) I've married a wife. And therefore, I cannot come. (laughs) She won't let me. (laughs) So the servant came. And he showed his lord these things. And the master of the house was angry he realized that these were just lame excuses. They weren't reasons. They were just, he realized that people just didn't want to come. And so he was angry. He said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and in the lanes, in the city, and bring hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. Now, remember earlier, these are the kind of people that Jesus said that this Pharisee should invite to his feast, the poor, the lame, the halt, the blind. So now the the master is saying to his servant, you go out into the streets and, and bring in the poor and the lame and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as you have commanded, and still there's more room. And so the Lord said unto the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house might be filled. And then he made application to the parable, for I say unto you, that none of those men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. Now, the parable is concerning, of course, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And how that those that were bidden, the Jewish nation to whom the gospel was first given, how they have rejected, how they have offered their excuses for not receiving him as the Messiah. And so how that through the rejection of the Jews, the gospel was then presented to the Gentiles as the servant went out to the highways and the hedges and compelled anyone, come on in, And so Paul the Apostle tells us that we as wild olive branches were grafted into the tree. The natural branch was cut off that we might be grafted in. And so we have this glorious privilege as Gentiles of being a part of the body of Christ, invited to the feast, invited to the glorious he talked about the feast in the kingdom of heaven and so this is this is that feast uh, blessed are they who will eat bread in the kingdom of god and so this is a parable that is is reference to that feast that shall take place in the kingdom of god often called the marriage supper of the lamb blessed is he in revelation 19:9 9, it said It declares, and he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So, as Jesus then left the house of the Pharisee, he first of all addressed himself to the invited guests who were trying to get the best seats. He then addressed himself to the host because of his guest list, and then he answered the the one person who seemed to sort of catch the message, saying, oh, blessed is the one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Now he leaves the feast, and a great multitude were with him. They began to follow him, Wherever Jesus would go, there would be multitudes that would follow him. And as he left the house, the multitude were there waiting, and they began to follow him. And he turned to the multitude, the multitude that would follow him. And he said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children... And brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in three places here, Jesus is going to talk about he cannot be my disciple. Talking about the cost of discipleship, Jesus never said it would be an easy thing to be his disciple. In fact, he often encouraged people to count the cost. When one fellow said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, he said, the foxes have their holes, the birds of the air have their nest. the Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay his head. You really want to follow me? He never said it was going to be easy. Now, this is an extremely difficult passage, and it is often misunderstood and misinterpreted because our word love and hate are opposite extremes. In the Eastern mind and thought, they are comparative words, not opposite words. Jesus told us that we're to love our enemies He told us that we are to love one another even as He loves us. The Bible tells us, husbands, that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. So obviously, Jesus is not saying to follow Him, you've got to hate your mother and your father, your sisters, your brothers family members, your children, and your own life also. What he is saying is that your love for him must exceed your love for your mother or for your father or your wife or your children or your brothers or your sisters. Your love for him must be supreme. As in the law, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, strength, and then thy neighbor as thyself. But your love for him has to be first. It has to be supreme. So that if your love for him brings you at odds, if your parents make it a thing of It's your love for Jesus or your love for us. Then you've got to choose to love Jesus. If it comes to that kind of a decision, if your wife says, I'm not going to live with you any longer, if you're going to be a Christian and follow those things, then your love for Jesus has to exceed your love for your wife. Or if your husband says, I can't stand that religious stuff anymore, and if you keep on that, I'm leaving, you've got to let him leave. Paul said if a believing wife have an unbelieving husband, not content to remain with her, then let him depart. She's not under bondage. And so Jesus is saying that your love for him has to be supreme. It has to exceed your love for your mother, your father, your children, your wife, your family, brothers, sisters, sisters. Whatever, your love for him has to be first and paramount. Now, it is a glorious thing when the whole family loves the Lord. What a special bond that is. When the family is united in their love for the Lord, when the family together seeks the Lord, and yet that is not always the case. And there have been many cases where a person had to choose a love for Jesus over the love for the family, especially in the Jewish home, where to believe in Jesus many times created such a breach that the family would even have a funeral service and consider you dead. Seeing you on the street, they would not speak to you. They would look right past you. They considered you as dead because you dared to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That still happens today in some Orthodox Jewish homes. But in those cases, your love for the Lord must exceed even your love for the family. And if it doesn't exceed your love for the family, you cannot be his disciple. In Deuteronomy, under the law, chapter 13, beginning with verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or your friend, which is your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, you nor your fathers, namely the gods of the people which are round about you and near unto you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall your eye pity him, and neither shall you spare. Deuteronomy 21.15, if a man has two wives... And this is the idea of hate now. One is loved and the other is hated. Now, it doesn't mean that he really hates his wife, but he loves one more than the other. Uh, That was the case, you remember, with um, Elkanah and Hannah. He had two wives. Uh, He obviously loved uh, Hannah better than the other wife. And so the other wife, realizing that her husband loved Hannah more, uh, really gave Hannah a bad time, constantly needling her, because Hannah couldn't have children, and the other wife could have children, and so she was just making life miserable for Hannah. In uh, the case of Jacob, you remember uh He was in love with uh, Rachel, worked seven years, and the father pulled the switcheroo and gave him the older sister, Leah, who he really wasn't interested in, but uh, he was sort of trapped, and so he worked another seven years for Rachel. And he loved Rachel more than Leah, and it created the problem because Leah realized that, you know, his, his first love was towards Rachel. So, The idea was loving one and hating the other. But in reality, he didn't hate Leah. But he just didn't love her as much as he loved Rachel. So the Lord isn't saying you got to hate your family. It's just you've got to love him more than your family, comparative. And Matthew, Jesus, did make the comparison. He said, he that loveth father or mother more than me... Is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So there, the comparative is is demonstrated or shown, declared. So, don't feel well. You know, to be a disciple of Jesus, I got to hate now my wife and my kids and everybody else. Not so. It's just that you have to love the Lord more than all other relationships. And then he declared, verse 27, and whosoever doth not bear his cross. Now he says we're to love him more than we love ourselves. That's really loving a lot, isn't it? And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me shall not be my disciple. Now, there have been some ridiculous things said concerning this idea of bearing a cross. I have a mother-in-law who's just really an nag. Now, I, I really don't. She's dead, and she was sweet, and I loved her. But here's a fellow saying, <laughs> I have a mother-in-law, and she's just really a beast, you know, and oh, I, 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 I hate it every time I have to go over to her house. But I guess that's just the cross I have to bear. No, 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 no. That's not the cross. But, but we often, you know, we say, well, you know, I, I, I've got this gout, and I guess that's just the cross I have to bear, or, or some, something like that, and we say, that's the cross. No. In the life of Jesus, the cross represented a total submission to the will of the Father in the garden of Gethsemane when facing the cross. And Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but thy will be done. That's the cross. The cross is the complete surrendering of yourself to the will of God. And so if you're not willing to fully surrender yourself to the will of God, that might involve suffering. It might involve pain. Then you cannot be his disciple. It takes a love for him that is paramount of all loves in your life. It takes a submission unto his will to be his disciple. And then Jesus again gives them a parable. And he said, which of you intending to build a tower? Now, most of the people lived within the walled cities. But they had their fields out in the countryside. And during the summer season... They would move out of their city house and live in their vineyards or in their orchards out in the countryside. And they would build towers in their vineyards. The towers had two purposes. One, they lived in the tower. But secondly, from the tower, they could watch their vineyard to make sure that as the fruit was getting ripe, that no one would come in and steal their fruit. So the purpose of the towers was that of of shelter and that of observation. And even today, over there in that land, you can see how the fields have been marked off by the rock walls, and you can see the towers that are there in the fields. And even to the present day, some of these towers are still used. So if a man is going to build a tower, first he said, for which of you intending to build a tower, you don't sit down first and you count the cost. In other words, you you say, boy, am I able to afford this? Whether you have sufficient money to finish it. The the first thing in planning is is the financing. Do Do I have the money to do it? this uh, situation that you've seen in the paper, this house in Irvine where the fellows built this uh, house and, you know, he didn't have money to finish it and and so the city was going to bulldoze it down but some fellow came through yesterday and loaned him the 65000 he needs to. But, but the, that was a mistake he made. He didn't sit down to find out whether or not, and boy, he's gone through a real trial with the uh, city of Irvine and so forth because he didn't have enough to finish this tower that he built there in his neighborhood. And so Jesus said the wise thing, you know, the wise person sits down and he first of all figures out what it's going to cost and do I have enough money to to finish this project? Lest he said happily, not happily, but happily, by chance. <laughs> After he has laid the foundation, he's not able to finish it. And so Everybody that goes by mocks him as happened to this fellow. I mean, he didn't have the money to finish it and, and so everybody just starts sort of snickering over there. You know, look at that monstrosity and wires hanging all over the place and, you know, it isn't up to code. And so uh, they, they they say, this man began to build but he wasn't able to finish it. Unfinished towers. Or... Same principle, what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consults whether he is able with his 10,000 to meet him who is coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends ambassadors and desires for conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the third requirement for discipleship is forsaking all that you have to be his disciple. In other words, your love for him has to not only exceed your love for your family, but your love for your possessions. And then Jesus finished off by saying, salt is good. But if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, if the salt has lost its savor, his, its tang, its saltiness, It's not good for seasoning. Salt in those days was used as a seasoning, but it was also used as a preservative. In Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And then again, if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. Looking at salt, first of all, as a preservative, Jesus is declaring that The church should be a preserving influence in the community. Meat, not refrigerated, begins to rot very quickly after being butchered. The salt killed the surface bacteria and thus preserved the meat. The world is a rotten place. The church is to be a preserving influence in the church, in the world, to keep it from rotting. But then salt is a seasoning. There are a lot of foods that are very flat and insipid without salt. Now, growing up as a boy, I grew up on Whole-grain cereals. No post-toasties or box cereals, the sugary junk that they feed kids today. Old-fashioned oats. Takes longer to cook, but can't beat their flavor, texture. Whole-wheat. Whole-wheat cereals and whole grain cereals. And every once in a while, my mother would forget to put the salt in the boiling water before she added the oats. And so we would get a bowl of oats without any salt, and it was just flat. Now, I love oats, but oats without salt are just flat. And we'd put extra sugar on them to just sort of liven it up. But even with the extra sugar, it's still flat. Mashed potatoes without salt. Just flat. The salt does something for it. It it gives it, you know, the real zing, a taste to it. it. It makes it good. It makes it pleasant to eat. It adds so much. As a Christian, you should be adding flavor to the world. It's a rather flat world out there. But your influence should be that of enhancing the world in which you live. But then I've noticed one third quality about salt, and that is you get A lot of salty things, and what does it do? It creates a thirst. After you've eaten a bag of potato chips, man, you're ready for something to drink. You know, you get thirsty. Salt creates a thirst. And thus, you as a Christian should be creating a thirst in others to know the Lord. So if the salt isn't salty, if it's lost its tang, not good for seasoning. In fact, it's really not good for it. It's not fit, Jesus said, for land, nor even for the dunghill. But men just cast it out. Your life as a Christian, Has to have some zest, some tang to it, or really it's not worth anything, just cast out. Notice how where the church has lost its savory influence in the world, how that the world has become so rotten because the church is not a preserving influence. It's lost its savor. It's become another political force. Lost its savor, and and how that it's really, the church has been crushed, cast out, trodden under the foot of man. So in, in a sense, Jesus is giving an ultimatum, either accomplish the purpose for which You are a disciple. You're a follower of his. Or else you'll be cast out. You're not really doing your job. You're not worth anything. Next week we will move on ahead into chapter 15. Father, we thank you for the exhortations given to us by our Lord And as we consider, Lord, these requirements for discipleship, loving you supremely, loving you more than anything else, any other relationship, submitting ourselves, Lord, fully to your will, and also, Lord, loving you more than our possessions, more than our lives, Lord, may we indeed become your disciples. And with this kind of commitment, Lord, may we become a savory influence in the world, a preserving influence. May our lives, Lord, add flavor and zest. Help us, Lord, to be what you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Shall we stand? It is interesting how that the Bible tells us concerning the disciples when they were called by Jesus, Peter, James, John, Andrew, that they left all, they forsook all and followed Him. Matthew left the receipt of custom, followed Jesus. They left houses, homes, jobs. They put Jesus first. They loved him more than they loved their own lives. You remember Paul the Apostle when he was on his way to Jerusalem and he was staying with Philip in his home in Caesarea. And how this prophet from the church in Jerusalem by the name of Agabus came down to the house of Philip and he took Paul's girdle and he tied himself up with Paul's girdle and he said, so is the man who owns this girdle to be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. And Philip and all of those in his house began to cry and say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Oh, Paul, don't go. And Paul says, what do you mean by all these tears? You think I'm afraid of being bound? I'm ready to die for Jesus Christ. He loved the Lord more more than his own life. And that's what, what Jesus is asking us to do. Love him supremely, more than any other relationship, more than ourselves, more than our possessions. Submit ourselves unto the will of God and to follow him. It's a challenge. It's not an easy thing. It's a challenge. But oh, how blessed are those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Shall we turn now to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, as we continue our journey through the Bible? It's the Sabbath day. It began with Jesus being invited by a Pharisee to come for dinner. It was a setup because they also invited a man who had that disease known as dropsy, where uh, a serum sort of fills the skin and causes the face and all to look as though it's just dropping. It was a fatal disease. And they brought that man also, or invited him also to the dinner in order that they might watch Jesus to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath day. And after asking a couple of pertinent questions, he healed the man. And then he rebuked the other Pharisees who were bidden to the feast because he had watched them on how they were positioning themselves to get the places of honor. He said it would be better to just take a lower place and be invited higher than to take a higher place and be invited lower. He then sort of rebuked the host for his guest list, for he invited all of the prominent, wealthy people who would be able to reciprocate the invitation.
0: We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the terms of discipleship. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 14 through 15 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at the wordforToday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's one 9673 If you prefer to write, our mailing address is the Word for Today PO box eight thousand Costa Mesa, California nine two six two eight. And now on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck.
1: May the Lord be with you, and may the Lord bless you, and may we consider these challenges of Jesus. And if there is something in your life that has Gain ascendancy Something that has become more important to you than Jesus A love, a relationship, or whatever Maybe the Lord will call you to a test Are you willing to give that up to follow Him? Are you willing to love Him more than any other relationship? Are you willing to give all to follow Christ? May we indeed follow Him this week
0: This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. The 1960s became one of the most colorful periods in American history. The counterculture was dropping out and turning on. The Summer of Love was the stage for many dramas of change, and the most popular musical group in the world was singing, All You Need Is Love. But one man in Southern California was reaching out with the answer, and the truth began to set people free. Author and Pastor Chuck Smith began to share the love of Jesus Christ with a generation that was looking for love in all the wrong places. Now, some 40 years later, the gospel of love is still changing lives. In his book simply titled, Love, The More Excellent Way, Pastor Chuck Smith expounds upon the love that can change your life now and forever. For more information on how to obtain your copy, visit
1: a bookstore nearest you or call 1-800-272-WORD, or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org. That's thewordfortoday.org.